Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, April 19, 2018, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. Historian Andrew Roberts discusses Winston Churchill's many curious and dangerous life-threatening experiences. And now, enjoy the podcast. Winston is full of the poor, the Liberal MP Charles Masterson wrote to his wife Lucy in the spring of 1908, whom he has just discovered. He thinks he's called by providence to do something for them. Masterman then quoted Churchill saying, Why have I been kept safe within a hair's breadth of death except to do something like this? I am not going to live long. In my inaugural lecture of this series uh, in January, I argued that Winston Churchill's sense of walking with destiny when he became Prime Minister in May 1940 sprung from the large numbers of times he had come close to death, giving him a profound belief in himself and his providential duty to be a great man and to save Britain, the empire and civilization. (coughs) Not necessarily in that order, actually. Uh, um, In this lecture, I'd like to go further and examine both his many brushes with death and the effect they had on him, but also his whole attitude towards the concept of death. His remark to Masterman about not having long to live was a constant refrain of his until well into middle age. His father's siblings had died at four months, two years, and four years old. His father and aunt both died at the age of 45. His uncle, the 8th Duke of Marlborough, at 48, and another aunt at 51. Uh, this, this was very young, even for the late 19th century. So it was understandable that he should believe he needed to make his mark early in life. Many of Churchill's contemporaries thought him, in the colloquialisms of the day, as a pusher and a thruster, and so he was. But they often didn't appreciate that there was a cold actuarial reason behind this. His first brush with death came on the day he was born. He was at least six weeks and probably two months premature. And his mother, the beautiful Brooklyn-born socialite Jenny Jerome, had suffered a fall a few days earlier. She'd also been shaken about by a pony cart um, the day before the birth, which is what brought on her labour pains. There's an active debate amongst historians about whether Jenny and Winston's father, Lord Randolph Churchill, had sex before their marriage on the April the 15th of that year, and that therefore Churchill's birth on November the 30th was not in fact premature. Uh, <laughs> Some historians argue that it was um, so passionate a love match that they were both lifelong rule breakers, so perhaps they had broken the strict Victorian moral code. Others reply that the risk to both of their reputations, especially Jenny's, meant that they certainly would not have, and anyhow they uh, had almost no unchaperoned opportunity for any such tryst. Uh, My own carefully um, considered view on this fraught historical issue... um, (laughs) is that I couldn't care less. (laughs) At the prep school Churchill attended, um, he was stabbed in the chest with a penknife, age 10, by a boy whose ear he was yanking. 
Two years later, he contracted pneumonia. His temperature reached 104.3 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 40.2 centigrade, and he became delirious. My boy at school at Brighton nearly died of inflammation of the lungs last week, his father informed Lord Salisbury, the Conservative Party leader. It wasn't actually both his lungs, it was just his right lung, but nonetheless, uh, he was in mortal danger. The poor boy, ladies and gentlemen, had brandy administered to him both orally and rectally. Uh, You might have thought that that would have put him off the stuff for life, but it certainly didn't. (laughs) After leaving his public school, Harrow, prior to entering the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, um, he and his younger brother, Jack, went on a tour of Switzerland. They were swimming alone off a boat in the middle of Lake Geneva when a light breeze started to blow the boat away from them. I saw death as near as I believe I've ever seen him, Churchill later wrote in his autobiography, My Early Life. He was swimming in the water at our side, whispering from time to time in the rising wind, which continued to carry the boat away from us at about the same speed we could swim. No help was near. Unaided, we could never have reached the shore. I now swam for life. I scrambled in and rowed back for my companion, who, though tired, had not apparently realised the dull yellow glare of mortal peril that had so suddenly played around us. Um, he, he calls him his companion in the book and doesn't let on that it was, in fact, his brother who he had, uh, he had brought so, uh, so close to, uh, to an early death. In January 1893, playing a game of chase with his cousins at their estate in Wimborne, aged 18, Churchill jumped off a footbridge, hoping the branches of the tree below him would snap off and break his descent. Um, They didn't. Uh, He fell nearly 30 feet onto hard ground, was concussed for three days, and confined to bed for nearly three months with a ruptured kidney and a broken bone in his mid-back that was only discovered in an X-ray 69 years later. Uh, For a year, I looked at life round a corner, he wrote of this incident. The day after his 21st birthday, attached to the Spanish army in Cuba in 1895, fighting the Cuban rebels, he recorded how, quote, a ragged volley rang out from the edge of the forest. The horse immediately next to me, not my horse, gave a bound. It had been shot in the ribs. And, quote, I could not help reflecting that the bullet which had struck the chestnut horse was, um, sorry, had certainly passed within a foot of my head. He was under heavy fire for more than 10 minutes and more sporadic fire for a day and a half. Of the bullets, he wrote, there were sounds about us, sometimes like a sigh, sometimes like a whistle, and at others like the buzz of an offended hornet. Two years later, having been under fire a good deal um, while serving with the Malakand Field Force on what is now the India-Pakistan border, he noted, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. In 1898, travelling from Cairo to join the 21st Lancers in the Sudan, Churchill got separated from his convoy and spent a miserable night without food or water in the desert in mid-August, wandering for 70 miles before he found it again. He did this through the use of the stars, in particular what he later called the glorious constellation of Orion. Never did the giant look more splendid. It directed him towards the River Nile, thereby saving his life. 
when later in, in life he uh, had his rather boozy dinners at the Savoy with his friends of the other club, um, he would uh, often tell the chauffeur who was driving him home about, uh, he would point out the Orion constellation and tell him the story of, uh, of how it had saved his life. That life was nearly lost three weeks later, um, in 1898, when he was surrounded by Sudanese dervish followers of the Khalifa during the charge of the 21st Lancers at the Battle of Omdurman. Fortunately, because he had dislocated his right shoulder the previous year in India, he could not wield a sword. So instead, he armed himself with a Mauser pistol and was able to shoot four dervishes who were trying to slash the hind legs of his horse. If he had come off it, he would almost certainly have been butchered. The regiment took 25% casualties that day. A year later, in yet another conflict, the Boer War, Churchill took command, despite being a war correspondent, not a combatant, of the defence of an armoured train that had been ambushed and was pinned down by accurate fire for 90 minutes in a unit that took 30% casualties. Once captured, some of the Boers wanted Churchill to be shot for um, bearing arms as a journalist, but he escaped that, and a few days later, he also escaped from the prisoner of war camp, walking through the centre of the enemy capital, Pretoria in the Transvaal, at night. Having escaped, he continued to cover the war, and in the heavy fighting, he experienced several near misses. One bullet came so close um, that it parted the Sakabula tail feathers on his hat. When he and his brother, Jack, carried out a reconnaissance um, mission on Hazar Hill later in that war, and Jack was shot in the leg, Churchill wrote about, quote, the strange caprice which strikes down one man in his first skirmish and protects another time after time. He was, of course, talking about himself. And for another war correspondent, John Atkins, uh, wrote, it seemed as though Jack had paid his brother's debts. That implies, that, that phrase implies, that his list of close shaves was already being noticed by people. And it was added to in Uganda in uh, 1907 when a tsetse fly, which carried the lethal sleeping sickness, landed on his bare shoulder in Uganda and was flicked off just before it could bite. Or sting, or do whatever tsetse flies do. <laughs> Back in England at one o'clock in the morning of August the 6th, 1908, when everybody had gone to bed after Jack's wedding, a fire broke out due to a faulty new heating mechanism in the country house that Churchill was staying in. It spread to the beams and an entire wing of the house was raised to the ground. House guests scrambled from their bedrooms in scanty clothing. No sooner had he escaped to the burning house than, as his friend Eddie Marsh recalled, Winston commandeered a fireman's helmet and assumed the direction of operations. As Churchill was carrying two marble busts to safety, reported the Times, the blazing roof fell in behind him. Fortunately, the only life uh, lost that night was that of a canary. The next year, in November 1909, a suffragette named Theresa Garnett, attacked Churchill with a whip at Bristol Temple Meads Railway Station. And despite his seizing her by the wrists, he, she tried to force him onto the tracks. Churchill's wife, Clementine, jumped over a pile of luggage and grabbed his coat and pulled him back. Members of the local welcoming committee seized Garnet, who was arrested. Uh, Churchill went ahead with his meeting and Garnet was sentenced to one month's imprisonment for disturbing the peace because Churchill didn't press any more serious charges for the assault. Mrs Garnet was awarded a Medal of Honour by the Women's Political and Social Union um, 
But a slower Clementine, a stronger Garnet, or an incoming train might well have led to a very different outcome for Britain and the world in 1940. In 1945, Mrs. Garnet wrote to Churchill asking for her whip back. Um, It turned out that the police had kept it. Churchill then took up flying lessons within a decade of the Wright brothers' experiment at Kitty Hawk. On October the 22nd, 1913, he cheated death or serious injury when a monoplane that he was due to have flown in side-slipped and was totally wrecked. The next day, he flew an airship, uh, which had only been invented five years earlier. Churchill, uh, sorry, Clementine begged him not to fly, as did many others of his, uh, of his friends. But Churchill somewhat selfishly refused her request, despite the fact that aeronautics was still in their infancy and um, they had two children under the age of five. Do not be vexed with me, he told her on the 29th of November, saying that flying was, quote, not a serious risk, unquote. Three days later, Churchill's instructor, Captain Gilbert Wildman Lushington, was killed in a flying accident. Churchill continued to fly, however, even though in May 1914, a lieutenant who had taken him up only a week before also died in the same plane that they used, as did his co-pilot. Clementine wrote that her pleas begging her husband not to fly, were like beating one's head against a stone wall. In reply, he admitted that insurance companies, quote, try to charge excessive premiums on my life. And he put that down to political strain, short-lived parentage, and, of course, flying. Frankly, ladies and gentlemen, any insurance agent who gave Churchill cover uh, would have been insane, Uh, even regardless of the 160,000 cigars Churchill smoked in his lifetime. When on the 6th of June 1914, Churchill finally promised Clementine that he would give up flying, um, he had flown nearly 140 times in seven months. That same month, he and Clementine somehow emerged unscathed when a car crossed the road and hit theirs head-on on the Thames embankment. It was the first of three serious car crashes that he survived. Fighting in the trenches in the Great War brought Churchill close to death on very many occasions, not least on the 30 times that he entered no man's land um, on trench raids and got so close to the Germans that he could hear their conversation. Total indifference to death or casualties prevails, Churchill told Clementine about the Grenadier Guard's attitude to the 35 casualties that the battalion had suffered in less than a week of routine trench duty. Churchill was also already fatalistic about death, but now he was amongst others who were too. It was a preparation for those moments in the Second World War when he had to order certain units to fight to the last man. It was a terrible thing to have to do, but no more than Churchill was himself been prepared to do, if necessary, in his own fighting days. On Wednesday, November the 25th, 1915, Churchill had a transformative experience, which he described to Clementine, presumably so as not to alarm her unduly, merely as a curious thing. He was in his dugout when he received a message that Lieutenant General Sir Richard Haking, the commander of 11 Corps, was sending a car to pick him up at 4.30pm, which required him to walk for three miles across sopping fields in which stray bullets were always falling along tracks that were previ- had previously been uh, shelled. He walked for an hour only to learn from a staff officer that the meeting had been cancelled. So Churchill walked back for another hour across these uh, sopping fields, now plunged in darkness, abusing, quote, the complacency of the general for dragging him out in the rain and mud for nothing. 
When he finally got back to his dugout, however, he learned that soon after he had left it, a German high-explosive shell, known as a whiz-bang, had landed a few feet from where he had been sitting, smashing the, infrastructure, the, the structure of the uh, dugout and killing the mess orderly inside. Better not go in there, sir. It's an awful mess, a eh? uh, sergeant told him. About five minutes after you left, a whiz-bang came in through the roof and blew his head off. The following February, his dugout was hit by a shell which didn't explode. Um, that month saw another lucky escape for him when a shell burst at no great distance from him. On another occasion, what Churchill called the goddess nicotine probably saved his life as, quote, if I had not turned back to get that matchbox which I had left behind in my dugout in Flanders, might I not have just walked into the shell that pitched so harmlessly a hundred yards ahead? At 6am on February the 14th, he was also saluted on my doorstep by a very sulky bullet. Six days later, a 30-pound shell entered his bedroom, passed completely through it, and penetrated the cellar. This is now the third time in a fortnight that my bedroom has been pierced by shells, Churchill told Clementine. One lives calmly on the brink of the abyss. Churchill's comment on the death of his friend Raymond Asquith on, uh, in September 1916 was that when the grenadiers strode into the crash and thunder of the Somme, he went to his fate cool, poised, resolute, matter-of-fact, debonair. If Churchill's regiment had been ordered over the top, there can be no doubt that he would have adopted that same attitude. He survived more near misses as Minister of Munitions, visiting the front in September 1917. And in July 1918, he told Clementine how, when piloting a plane, an engine cut out, he, he, this promise to her that he was going to stop flying didn't last once the First World War had started, and he did uh, occasionally fly, fly planes across the channel. And, um, and he said that once the engine had cut out, he, um, he'd very nearly finished an eventful though disappointing life in the salt water of the channel. We just fluttered back home to shore. One must have careful engine supervision. The next July, having taken up flying lessons all over again, he took off from Croydon Aer Aerodrome with his instructor, Colonel Jack Scott, reached 90 feet, side-slipped and crashed. Scott switched off the ignition uh, seconds before they hit the gr ground, probably saving their lives as it prevented an explosion. Churchill walked away bruised with a scratched forehead and Scott broke his leg. Churchill finally gave up flying for good after that although he occasionally took the control of planes in which he flew in the Second World War. His thoughts on death were formed by the seeming haphazard nature of it that he had seen, and he admired brave men and women who treated it with disdain. When his cousin and friend, Freddie Guest, was dying of cancer at the age of 61 in 1937, he played backgammon with him and told Eddie Marsh afterwards, I've never known anyone show such complete contempt of death and make so little fuss of it. One of Churchill's closest brushes with death, of course, came here in New York on the evening of Sunday, the 31st of December, 1931. Having dined at his hotel, the Waldorf Astoria on Park Avenue and 49th Street, Churchill took a cab two miles uptown to his friend Bernie Baruch's house on 1055 Fifth Avenue two miles uptown between 86th and 87th streets. He realised during the journey that he didn't know Baruch's address, but he'd stayed there two years earlier and he was sure he was going to recognise the building. 
He paid off his cab on the Central Park side of Fifth Avenue between 76th and 77th Streets, a full ten blocks south of uh, Baruch's house. Now, there's a long-standing mystery here. Why, if he was coming from downtown, was he not dropped off on the residential eastern side of Fifth Avenue rather than the western Central Park side? In those days, Fifth Avenue had two-way traffic. Uh, Churchill began crossing the street, but halfway across, momentarily forgetting he wasn't in England, he looked left instead of right and was knocked down by a northbound car. The driver, Mario Constasino, or Contusino, accounts differ, of Yonkers, was going at about 35 miles an hour, tried to brake, but it was too late. There was one moment, Churchill wrote, I cannot measure it in time, of a world aglare and a man aghast. I certainly thought quickly enough to achieve the idea I'm going to be run down and probably killed. Then came the blow. I felt it on my forehead and across the thighs. But besides the blow, there was an impact, a shock, a concussion indescribably violent. It blotted out everything except thought. I do not understand why I was not broken like an eggshell or squashed like a gooseberry. I certainly must be very tough or very lucky or both. Ladies and gentlemen, I think at this stage of the lecture we can all agree that it's both. Uh, A man has been killed, shouted a passerby. A policeman arrived whom Churchill was able to inform uh, that he himself had been entirely at fault, not Mr. Consacino. He was taken to Lennox Hill Hospital, fortunately only two blocks away, lying on the floor of a cab. Um, Churchill found he could not move his hands or feet, but he soon felt violent pins and needles. He was treated for concussion, contusions, needing sutures on his nose and forehead, and heavy bruising on his right arm, chest and leg. He was hospitalised for over a week, and when Mr Consacino visited, he gave him a signed copy of The Eastern Front, his latest book, uh, and invited him to his first lecture after his convalescence, which took place at BAM, and which Consacino did indeed attend. I had a terrible bump, he wrote to a friend on the 30th, and how I was not squashed or shattered I cannot imagine. I was also very lucky in escaping the wheels, which only went over and broke the tips of my toes. His scientist friend, Prof Lindemann, explained, in, uh, explained the whole physics of the uh, accident in a telegram um, based on Churchill weighing 200 pounds, which read, Collision equivalent to falling 30 feet onto pavement, Equivalent, which, by the way, of course, was exactly what he had already done back in 1893. Uh, Equivalent to stopping a 10-pound brick dropped 600 feet or two charges of buckshot at point-blank range. Your body transferred during impact at the rate of 8,000 horsepower. Congratulations on preparing suitable cushion and skill in taking bump. (laughs) In July 1934, Sonny the ninth Duke of Marlborough, died. He was succeeded by the eldest of his two sons. But if he had died without a son, Churchill would have inherited the peerage, losing his seat in the Commons and almost certainly, therefore, the chance of becoming Prime Minister, um, as it was only possible to renounce peerages in 1958. He would therefore not have had the chance to lead Britain during the Second World War. He could survive a school stabbing, a 30-foot fall, pneumonia, a Swiss lake, Cuban bullets, Paythan tribesmen, dervish spears, Boer artillery and sentries, sleeping sickness, a house fire, two plane and three car crashes, uh, high, German high explosive shells, and latterly a New York motorist. 
But such were the vagaries of the British constitution and hereditary peerage system that he also required a duke and duchess to produce boys rather than girls to allow him to be in the right place to save Britain in World War II. Churchill has had several close brushes uh, with death as prime minister during the Second World War. On Monday, October the 14th, 1940, he was halfway through dinner in the steel-shuttered number 10 basement with four colleagues when he had what he later called a providential impulse. He got up and went to the kitchen to tell Georgina Landermere, his cook, as well as the butler and the kitchen maid, to leave the food on the hot plates and go to the air raid shelter immediately. He then returned to, to the table. Three minutes later, a bomb hit the streets immediately outside Number 10 Downing Street, causing, in the words of Churchill's memoirs, a really very loud crash close at hand, and a violent shock showed that the house had been struck. His bodyguard, Walter Thompson, came in to check the Prime Minister was unharmed and tell the diners that much damage had been done. The mess in the house was indescribable, Churchill's private secretary, John Martin, wrote to his parents. Windows smashed in all directions, everything covered with grime, doors off hinges and curtains and furniture tossed about in a confused mess. The hut of the soldiers who guard dining at Downing Street was completely demolished. Fortunately, they had taken refuge elsewhere. Churchill merely told Thompson, a pity it didn't fall a little closer in order to test our defences. In fact, it was just as well it had not, since the bomb blast had devastated the kitchen and pantry as the large plate glass windows blew in. Nonetheless, he and his guests continued their dinner and later went up onto the air ministry roof to watch the rest of the air raid. Uh, Winston is all right, having a very good dinner and very cheery, wrote Lord Lloyd, the Canolian secretary. Churchill's detractors accuse him of being thoughtless and curt towards his staff, and so undoubtedly he was on occasion. But his lifelong sense of noblesse oblige saved at least three lives that night. Nothing the king or Clementine could say would stop him going up onto the roof of the air ministry and the, the roof of the number 10 annex during air raids, wearing his steel helmet, his siren suit, and his RAF greatcoat. As, uh, as the bodyguard Thompson recalled, smoking a cigar and watching intently as explosions and fires lit up the battered city. Churchill's view was the fatalistic one adopted by soldiers throughout history. When my time comes, he said, it will come. He also used to quote Raymond Poincaré, the French president during the Great War, saying, I take refuge beneath the impenetrable arch of probability. Churchill often thought about his own death in the summer of 1940, telling Jock Colville, another of his private secretaries, that he did not much believe, quote, in personal survival after death, at least not of the memory. On one occasion, he was standing in the doorway of the number 10 annex, watching the shell bursts and the searchlights, when Thompson suddenly flung himself onto the Prime Minister. Don't do that, he roared at me, recalled Thompson. But it may have been lucky that I did, for some of the shrapnel flew through the open doorway and a colleague of mine in the rear of the party was hit. That was only one of the many incidents I remember of Winston Churchill taking deliberate risks during the Blitz. He insisted on seeing for himself what was going on. Churchill hated going down into bunkers and air raid shelters and would not leave Number 10 to go back to the Cabinet War Rooms bunker until the anti-aircraft guns had actually started firing. On one occasion, a thousand-pound bomb landed on the spot he had been standing in one minute earlier. He would often return to Number 10 before daylight while the raid was still on, recalled Thompson, who clearly had none of the powers of, of present-day bodyguards. 
Did Churchill have some kind of a death wish? I cannot help feeling that to die at the height of a man's career, he told his fellow MPs in his eulogy to Lord Lothian, the British ambassador to Washington in December 1940, the highest moment of his effort here in the world, universally honoured and admired, to die while great issues are still commanding the whole of his interest, to be taken away from us at a moment when he could already see ultimate success in view is not the most unenviable of fates, he said. Later in the war, especially once Russia and eventually the United States um, got into the conflict and victory was certain, he was often to speak of his own death as an enviable one. On the 16th of January 1941, Churchill attended a trial of new rockets fired from the turret of the battleship HMS Nelson. It was a multiple projector that hurled bombs and wire into the sky to counter dive bombing, but not enough allowance had been made for the wind, and one of the wires drifted back onto the ship. One of the projectiles got entangled in the rigging, recalled John Martin. There was a loud explosion, and a jam jar-like object flew towards the bridge where we were standing. Everyone ducked, and there was a loud bang, but no serious damage was done. After getting to his feet, Churchill observed to the ship's captain... I think there's something not quite right about the way you're using this weapon. In 1942, he suffered a mild heart attack while opening a sash window in the bedroom in his bedroom at uh, in the White House. The next year, he suffered two severe attacks of pneumonia, one requiring a week's convalescence at Carthage. He kept his sense of humour throughout. When his doctor asked for a sample of blood uh, for testing, he said, "You can use my finger or my ear." And, of course, I have an almost infinite expanse of arse. (laughs) He also liked the historical connection of the place. I'm tired out in body, spirit and soul, he told Walter Thompson. All is planned and ready. In what better place than I could die here in the ruins of Carthage? Churchill crossed the Atlantic no fewer than 12 times during the Second World War, both over the U-boat-infested ocean and flying over without fighter escort. He also flew over the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and Russia, travelling 120,000 miles, uh, often in unpressurised cabins in his 70s and several times within range of enemy fighter planes. On January the 29th, 1943, Brigadier Vivian Dykes, uh, Director of Plans at the War Office, died in a plane crash on a route that Churchill had recently taken prompting the Prime Minister to tell his Assistant Military Secretary, Ian Jacob, that if he himself died, I think it's a pretty straight run now. Even the Cabinet could manage it. When the Cabinet tried unsuccessfully to prevent him from visiting Turkey shortly afterwards because of the danger, he told Anthony Eden, his Foreign Secretary, that he must be allowed to go where he liked when he was abroad. Anyway, if he had been killed, it would have been a good way to die. The concept of a good death was always very important to him. With the Washington Conference concluded in June 1943, Churchill flew to Gibraltar via Newfoundland. On his way there, his Bristol flying boat was struck by lightning. All at once there was a sudden shock and bump, Churchill recalled. I awoke, something had happened. There were no consequences, which after all is what is important in air journeys. To a groundsman it would seem quite a dangerous thing. Afterwards I learned that there had been a good deal of anxiety. This was understandable. Uh, Lightning strikes were more dangerous for 1940s aircraft than they are today. Electrical generators could fail, causing loss of instrumentation, and compasses could also be affected. 
which in the mid-Atlantic uh, could, of course, have proved disastrous. <coughs> In Christmas 1944, determined to prevent Greece from uh, falling to communism, Churchill and Eden flew to Athens. On the way from the airport, they passed a checkpoint which the communists had mortared that very morning. Going out onto HMS Ajax's quarterdeck on the morning of December the 26th, Churchill could see the smoke of battle west of the Piraeus and hear shell and machine gun fire. As he was being taken to the shore on a launch, a shell landed fairly close and the ship had to be relocated a mile away due to mortar fire. The next day, he was dictating to his secretary when shells rocked the ship. There, he shouted, you bloody well missed us. Come on, try again. Before lunch, on shore, a uh, burst of long-range machine gun fire hit a wall 30 feet over Churchill's head, and a lady in the street was killed. On March the 25th, 1945, Churchill crossed the Rhine in a landing craft two days after the Allied armies. He did it at Buderich, six miles north of Eisenhower's headquarters at Rheinberg, where the river is about 400 yards wide. You can still go there now. You can see exactly where it took place. It was a relief to get Winston home safely, uh, General Brooke wrote in his diary. I, know, I knew that he longed to get into the most exposed position possible. I honestly believe that he would really have liked to have been killed on the front at this moment of success. He's often told me that the way to die is to pass out fighting when your blood is up and you feel nothing. Perhaps part of Churchill's great admiration for Admiral Nelson was for his glorious death at the moment of victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. What an enviable death was his, Churchill said of President Roosevelt at his London memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral in April 1945. He has brought his country through the worst of its perils and the heaviest of its toils. Victory has cast its sure and steady beam upon him. In the days of peace, he had broadened and stabilised the foundations of American life and union. In war, he has raised the strength, might, and glory of the great republic to a height never attained by any nation in history. For us, it remains only to say that in Franklin Roosevelt there died the greatest American friend we have ever known and the greatest champion of freedom who has ever brought help and comfort from the new world to the old. Dictating an early draft of his victory broadcast, Churchill recited Tennyson with tears flowing down his face and told his secretary that death was the only democratic institution. It comes to everyone. When his brother Jack died in 1947, he wrote to his old friend and best man, Lord Hugh Sissel, saying he had no fear and little pain. Death seems very easy at the end of the road. Do you think we shall be allowed to sleep a long time? I hope so. He told his doctor about this time that he did not believe in another world, only in black velvet, eternal sleep. Of course, despite Churchill believing that he would die early, refusing to be fearful or even particularly respectful of death and living a life that meant that no insurance company wanted to cover him, the Grim Reaper obviously had a neat sense of irony because he did not comfort Churchill until he was 90 years old, asleep in his bed, surrounded by his loving family, replete with the honours and decorations of a grateful nation and admired by the world. And it took place on the 70th anniversary of his father's death, just as he had 12 years earlier predicted it would. In a survey taken of 3,000 British teenagers a decade ago, and there's no reason why these numbers should be any better and probably might be worse, 
um, graceful excising of Churchill from the British national curriculum. He's a hero, you see, and uh, you can't teach about heroes in our crabbed modern age. But in a sense, it's also a tribute to him that people think of him, insofar as they know anything about him, as someone whose life story could not possibly be true. Uh, how can such a man have ever existed and lived that life and, and survived so many near-death experiences? By the way, the majority of uh, those teenagers did believe in the real-life um, existence of Sherlock Holmes, uh, uh, King Arthur, and Eleanor Rigby. <coughs> <laughs> uh, in... In mid-July 1915, Churchill wrote a letter to his beloved wife Clementine to be opened in the event of his being killed on a mission to Gallipoli that the cabinet was sending her on. Do not grieve for me too much, he wrote to her. I am a spirit confident of my rights. Death is only an incident, not the most important which happens to us in this state of being. On the whole, especially since I met you, my darling one, I've been happy. And you have taught me how noble a woman's heart can be. If there is anywhere else, I shall be on the lookout for you. Meanwhile, look forward, feel free, cherish the children, guard my memory. God bless you. Love, he was saying in that message, intended only to be delivered from beyond the grave, far supersedes mere mortality. Winston Churchill expressed many noble sentiments in his long life, but none, I think, nobler than this. Thank you very much. Thank you. We now have that part of the evening where I'm asked fiendishly difficult questions. Um, are, there, uh, uh, are there other historical figures who had an unusual number of near-death experiences? Were they as effective leaders in Ch as Churchill? It's a very interesting question. I mean, of course, uh, in a sense, Napoleon is the obvious person to turn to because he fought 60 battles. And in those days, generals were absolutely at the front of their, um, of their armies. They were within cannon fire shot um, as Napoleon constantly uh, reminded people all the way through the, uh, the uh, battles. There are very few battles where Napoleon wasn't in Borodino, perhaps, and, uh, and, and Waterloo to an extent. But otherwise, you know, these guys were on the front, uh, front line. So uh, he wasn't alone in, um, in... Churchill wasn't alone in that. But the extraordinary thing about Churchill is the number of, of um, experience, near-death experiences that happened away from battlefields. Um, through through cars and planes and and um, you know children stabbing you and things like that uh, the uh, one one to an extent expects a a, a general to uh, to face uh, face these uh, great dangers but for um, somebody to stack up quite that number of near death experiences is in my um, experience as a historian at least um, unique did his own um, clashes with death affect consideration for sending boys into battle? Oh yes, absolutely it did. Um, he, uh, he never had to ask any men to do anything that he himself had not been prepared to do as a, uh, as a soldier. That must be 
a, uh, a very powerful experience on you um, as a politician. He, uh, one thinks of the terrible days in May 1940 when he had to order the uh, 51st Division to effectively fight to the last man, um, including, and Anthony Eden was present at the, at the um, meeting where, uh, where they had to um, agree this. And Eden's own regiment that he had served in in the First World War was one of the regiments in the, uh, in the division. And um, Churchill writes in his memoirs about the, about the silences and the, and the pain of the, uh, of the decision. But um, having, uh, having fought themselves, Anthony Eden won the military cross, in fact, in the First World War. Um, they knew precisely what they were um, sending their boys in to do. Um, did Churchill at any time employ a body double for his safety and uh, protection? Um, he didn't, but others did. Um, uh, Montgomery famously had somebody go to Gibraltar just prior to D-Day in order to uh, get German spies to think that um, the attack couldn't possibly be about to take place. Um, body doubles were used by Stalin to a, uh, to a degree, um, but not, to, um, not in the way that that great movie... Um, um, it's not Where Eagles Dare. Oh. Sorry? No, no, absolutely. But and I'm thinking about Churchill. Um, Churchill is... It's, uh, Sutherland was in it. Um, come on, guys. Uh, the, 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 the Eye of the Needle, the something of the... Eye of, you know, Eagle of Slandered is a, is, um, doesn't have body doubles. It's the, something... Sorry? No, no, Needle, Needle. I think it's called the, the Eye of the Needle. Eye of the Needle. Thank you, everybody. Not you lot, but... You know. Okay. Uh, in a previous lecture, you noted that the subway scene in The Darkest Hour was fictional. However, do you believe Churchill's own brushes with death helped him relate to a nation worried about the terrors of war? Absolutely, yes. And uh, the, the, the scene in the subway... Look, I don't want to make too much of this um, because it, it, Darkest Hour is a fabulous film and I love it and Gary Oldman deserved the Oscar and he's, uh, he's a great actor and the whole thing was wonderful. The only problem I have with the subway scene, apart from the fact, of course, that it was fictional, but endlessly, you know, what, what historical movie doesn't employ these, um, these tropes occasionally, perfectly understandably, is that it tends to detract from Churchill's greatness because he did not need the king or the people, um, um, or let alone the um, politicians, to... Uh, to decide that Britain was going to fight on and he was going to do everything to outmaneuver Lord Halifax to ensure that Britain did fight on. It was not something that came up from below at all. There were no, um, were no polls, there were no scenes uh, in the underground. He was, uh, he was there at the cabinet table sitting across from his uh, antagonist and he defeated him without the help of anybody else, which makes him, for me... Uh, to be a greater man than even Darkest Hour uh, allowed him to be. Um, which of Churchill's experiences do you think was the most dangerous? Well, off a battlefield, because of course when you're being shelled and three shells go through your bedroom, <laughs> that's going to be uh, pretty, is totally extraordinary. But um, yeah, I'm afraid it was your, the attempt of you New Yorkers uh, to, uh, <laughs> uh, to do him in, um, which, uh, which was easily, I think, the, the, most, uh, the most dangerous. And admittedly, of course, it's his um, fault for looking the wrong direction. Um, it would be, I would, if anybody's got a theory 
don't shout it out now. Come up and tell me afterwards about why on earth he was put on the on the Central Park side when it was. Um, you know, you, it makes so much more sense if you're coming from uh, the Waldorf Astoria and you're going up to 76th Street to an in, in two-way traffic to stick him on the um, side of the road which had the um, which had the, the the buildings on. So let me know. Um, anyone who's around in 1931 uh, can remember any of that. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did the um, did the public speculate about Churchill's health and dangerous life the way they do of modern politicians? Um, no, because because uh, first of all, all the all the drinking and smoking wasn't uh, wasn't considered uh, quite as sort of um, uh, dangerous in those days, anyhow. Um, and also, they didn't they didn't know that much about the. You, di- you certainly didn't have the situation where doctors had to give out regular. Um, regular updates on uh, on prime minister's um, health uh, in fact they managed to keep completely silent and hidden the fact that he had had a stroke whilst prime minister in peacetime um, the, the public didn't find out that until churchill himself blurted it out about a year later in the house of commons um, so uh, so yes that that is a that is a huge difference from the modern age um did Churchill's success as a war leader influence the UK's participation in other conflicts as a world peacekeeper? Really, pretty much the only conflict that Britain got involved in after the Second World War, with um, when Churchill was around, was the Korean War, and there we were very much the um, the number two or number three uh, after the United States. So it um, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a massive aspect of it. I mean, I think. Um, the Egyptians would have thought twice about nationalising the Suez Canal had um, Winston Churchill still been Prime Minister because uh, he had a much... um, His sheer reputation would have been something that they would have have worried about in the way that they didn't with Anthony Eden. If Winston Churchill had died, who do you think would have been Prime Minister in his place? Uh, Would this person have been as effective a leader during World War II? Um, Well, it very much depends on when he dies. Um, Early on, it would probably have been Lord Halifax, which would have been a catastrophe for Britain because we would have um, uh, entered into some kind of a peace negotiation in May and June of 1940. Later on, especially after Halifax came here to Washington in December 1940, it would possibly have been Max Beaverbrook. Um, Anthony Eden was the was the front runner, but he was only in his early 40s. He was 41. Um, and the king might have... Uh, uh, thought twice about sending for him by 1943. It would definitely have been him. Lord Beaverbrook was uh, was one of the runners in 1942. Sir Stafford Cripps, surprisingly, was also um, fancied his chances, um, but um, it wouldn't have come from either. It wouldn't have been Clement Attlee, the Deputy Prime Minister, or Ernest Bevin, the other. Um, big hitter of the day because they were both Labour and the House of Commons was overwhelmingly Conservative. So it would have been somebody who came from the Tory benches. But um, as for somebody as effective as leader as World War II, just absolutely certainly not. In your last lecture, you said... I'm just checking what this is all about before I... Uh, (laughs) 
Oh, no, that's a nice question. Uh, <laughs> in your last lecture, you said you were the only author granted access to the Queen's archives for your research. How did you get awarded this honour and access? Did you find much new and unknown information? I didn't actually say that I was the only author granted access. What I said was that I was the only... I was the first biographer of Churchill to be granted access to um, the Queen's archives relating to her father and her father's diary. Um, and I got this... Uh, how did I get this honour? Endless sucking up, uh, frankly. Um, <laughs> like everyone else. Um, and did you find much new and, un and unknown information? Um, did Pam mention my book is coming out on the thir 13th of November? The answer is yes, there is a mountain, a mountain. Uh, there have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill um, College, Cambridge, uh, the Churchill archives there, uh, since the last major biography of Churchill, uh, the Roy Jenkins one in 2001. 41 new sets of papers. All of Churchill's children's papers are now available. I was allowed to, uh, to work on and read Mary Soames, Churchill's daughter's diary for 1940. I, I quote a lot from that. It's never been quoted uh, from before. Um, the King's Diary, I quote from extensively. It's very interesting. He, Churchill, um, whereas Brooke wrote in his diary uh, to, to vent his spleen about things, primarily Churchill, um, Churchill actually, he led off steam to the King, knowing perfectly well that the King was an absolute clam when it came to, um, to information and was also somebody who had no purpose personal ambitions so it was something who could he was somebody he could tell anything to and who he knew had the best interests of the nation at heart and so being able to to uh, to write down um in this in this book of mine the thoughts of the king and quotations endless quotations what he used to do was to have lunch every tuesday with uh, the prime minister and then write down what churchill said so there are new lines, new jokes, uh, new, uh, new aperçus about loads of things about Churchill, which I'm very, very fortunate um, to be the first Churchill biographer to have uh, to put in a Churchill book. So um, thanks for that uh, fabulous puff. <laughs> Is it a British way of thinking to believe that when it's your time to die, there isn't anything you can really do about it? Is this a... Um, is this a comment on our National Health Service? <laughs> I don't think it's particularly British at all. I think what it is much more, as I hope to point out, was that it's a soldier's um, attitude. It's a stoical um, sense that a lot of soldiers have um, and that you can read in their, in their papers and diaries and letters and so on, that this idea that there is just so much luck involved in who catches the bullet, that, um, that the only attitude to, to take towards uh, your, the chances of your own death in, in battle is to acknowledge this entirely haphazard, um, sort of seemingly themeless uh, aspect of it. And that was very much Churchill's view, and, uh, but I think very much more uh, to do with his being a soldier than his being a, um, uh, 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 English. What started your interest in Churchill? How did you research to find out all this information? Well, as I say, with regard to the research, it's just an endless um, slog of going through um, archives. I think I went to 
something like 80 people's papers around who worked around uh, Churchill. This is also the fifth book that I've written with the word Churchill in the title or subtitle. Um, I do feel as though uh, with this book that all my past life has been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Um, and my interest in Churchill started uh, really as, as, as early as I can possibly remember. Um, I think when I was about three or four, I, I, I rather suspected my grandfather was Churchill. Um, and, uh, and since then, I have been completely uh, fascinated by him. The great thing is, though, that although he wrote 58 books and spoke 5.2 million words and uh, wrote 7.2 million as well, if you uh, take into account all his letters and his... Uh, and his um, uh, books and everything, there is still so very, very much more about this extraordinary man. My book um, will, I hope, um, pick up the the key factors and themes and quotations and jokes and the rest of it. But it's 1%. It's 1%. You, you look at the uh, companion volumes of Martin, that Martin Gilbert and lately uh, Larry Arne have been, um, have been compiling over the last uh, 40 years or so it is now. And you realise that um, it is like, uh, it's like rowing over the Atlantic and just chucking a bucket over the side and pretty much anything you bring up is worthwhile and, and fascinating. The numbers of aspects of, of, uh, of the of military history and politics and, uh, and all kinds of policy contact that he, in his 65 years as a politician, overlapped with, means that uh, you can write, as I have done with this, uh, with this book, my notes are 10... Uh, times longer, more than ten times longer than uh, than the actual book. And I've just been warned by my publishers yesterday that the book is 1,088 pages long. Uh, don't let that put any of you off, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.